Welcome to the President's Inbox, a CFR podcast about the foreign policy challenges facing the United States. I'm Jim Lindsay, Director of Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. This week's topic is artificial intelligence in the 2024 U.S. presidential election. With me to discuss how AI might affect the 2024 U.S. elections is Jessica Brandt. Jessica is the policy director for the Artificial Intelligence and Emerging Technology Initiative at the Brookings Institution, where she is a fellow in the Foreign Policy Program's Strobe Talbot Center for Security, Strategy, and Technology. Before joining Brookings, she was the head of policy and research for the Alliance for Securing Democracy and a senior fellow at the German Marshall Fund of the United States. Jessica has written extensively on foreign interference in U.S. politics and on the implications of emerging technologies for liberal democracies. This episode is part of the Council on Foreign Relations' Diamondstein Spielvogel Project on the Future of Democracy. Jessica, thank you for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. We are now less than 14 months out from the U.S. general election, which will select not just the next president, but a third of the Senate all of the U.S. House, and governorships and state legislatures across the country. Now, it's well known that U.S. elections have been particularly fractious in recent years, and into this mix suddenly comes artificial intelligence. Does the appearance of AI in the scene, Jessica, suggest we might repair those divisions or deepen them? I think we're going to deepen them. I mean, I think the explosion that we've seen in generative AI is going to exacerbate or turbocharge some of the challenges we've been grappling with, as you alluded to, for some time. So I see sort of four big buckets of challenges. One is, you know, deep fake technologies, which will give actors the ability to create realistic audio, video, and images. I think that could be used to do things like you know, manufacture an October surprise or fuel election conspiracies, right? We know in 2020 images of, you know, supposedly discarded ballots were, for example, used in this way, you know, or, you know, we could get audio of a candidate saying something objectionable about another party. We talk a lot about deep fakes of of the major presidential candidates. And of course, that's an option, but there's a lot of ways that manufactured content could be used to you know, shape the reality of our election. And I would say the targets aren't just going to be candidates. As I said, like, I think journalists are important targets. Prominent journalists are also kind of, I would say, like institutions of our democracy, and therefore maybe targets, you know, especially of foreign actors. So we have four buckets, one of which is deep fakes. What would the other three buckets be? The other is the sheer volume of unique content, which could be used to kind of overwhelm systems that take input from the public, things like notice and comment processes, but also just you know, the inboxes of our elected representatives can make it really hard to determine, you know, what is real and warrants a response. So it's partly that it could kind of sway officials, candidates and elected officials sense of where the public is, but it's also that it could just make it hard for democratic governments to be responsive to their citizens. And that's a big problem, especially in the context of, you know, between authoritarians and liberal democracies. Maybe we can get to that. Also here, I would say like A-B testing messages, right? If it's almost costless to create messages, then you can create, you know, spaghetti and throw it at the wall and just test and test and test to see what works. So it's, it's not the volume of content alone, but the ability to make it, you know, more persuasive to refine the message to figure out what works. And it's just going to be a lot harder to detect this stuff because, you know, one of the easy ways that we found some of the original kind of bot content was that it was 
copy and paste. <laughs> it was the same thing over and over and over again. But if we can be endlessly unique about it, then that'll be much harder. So that's the second bucket, the volume of content. And then I guess related to that, as I've alluded to, is just personalization and persuasiveness, right? Imagine like much, much better phishing attempts, right? That's how the Russians got in in 2016. You know, I'm thinking also about like, chat bots that could, you know, what happens if you're picking up the phone and you're talking to a computer on the other end and it's listening to what your concerns are and then spitting back messages that are responsive to your concerns, right? This is something we haven't grappled with yet, but it's a plausible reality. And then just like better targeting of vulnerable voters. That sounds like the ultimate robo phone call if it can actually respond to what you're saying. Totally. Content that's personalized and persuasive and real time and also virtually unidentifiable, right? Like one of the issues here is that if this conversation is happening on the phone and nobody knows that it's happening, how can candidates push back against messaging that's mischaracterizing their... So we kind of operate on this marketplace of ideas model, but it doesn't really work if the marketplace isn't wholly open. If it's not in the open market, but in the underground, you won't notice it. Exactly. And also, you know, think about like this happening in closed WhatsApp groups, you know, on signal channels and other places where the the sort of democratic model of the contest of ideas is really challenged. So that's the third bucket, the personalization, the persuasiveness. And then I think the most important one is just like nihilism about the existence of objective truth. You know, once we just live in a world where we feel like we can't trust what we see with our own eyes because we know about deep fake videos and audio and everything can be dismissed as a deep fake or as AI generated content, or, you know, we feel as though we can't rely on trusted sources of information because they might be manipulated. That really erodes what I see as one of the foundations of our democracy, which is, you know, democracies depend on the idea that the truth is knowable. You know, citizens can discern it, they can use it to govern themselves. And if we erode that, or, you know, in the case of the actors that I study, especially Russia and China, if they're able to erode that, I think it really has important implications for our democratic foundations and our position in this broader contest that I've gestured at. Jessica, let's dive into those four buckets a little bit, because I think there's a lot there. And I think one question that might immediately come to mind, particularly about deep fakes, is the fact that information has been misconstrued before. You offered up the example back in 2020 of photos allegedly showing ballots that were being mishandled. Now, those weren't deep fakes. They were just photos that fed a narrative that at least some people wanted to believe. So will deep fakes really be that different than what we've seen in the past? It's a great question. I think this is why I said it'll turbocharge challenges we're already grappling with, more so than you know creating a new category of problem. What we call shallow fakes, right? Just slowing down a video of Nancy Pelosi to make her look, you know, appear as though she was intoxicated, or speeding up that Jim Acosta video, right? That's not even a deep fake. And as you've said, you know, just Photoshop or even just photos taken out of context can create a false impression. So I think you're right that we're not, you know, when we talk about deep fakes, we're not necessarily talking about a challenge of a new kind, but it's at a different order of magnitude. As I said, I think we spend a lot of attention thinking about like deep fake videos of the major candidates. I think those would be likely to be debunked very, very quickly. And so I'm much more concerned about these kind of lower level or what appear to be lower level targets such as, you know, election officials that could be a part of a broader information operation where, you know, you get a clip of an election official, I don't know, reported leak of a phone conversation that they have, you know, suggesting that there's been malfeasance and then 
an army of folks on Twitter or it's whatever succeeds it, um, you know, spinning up messages that we see across platforms. It's about the way that information travels across our information environment and not just platforms, but, you know, news outlets, et cetera. I will say the nihilism about the truth problem feels very, very real to me. And again, it's not a problem that we're, you know, not accustomed to. We have that problem already. But there, I do think that deep fakes and just the mere existence of, you know, our understanding that a deep fake exists and is a distinct possibility will exacerbate that problem, whether or not it's used. You know, there was a lot of conversation in 2020 about perception hacking, which was this technique of relying on sort of the anticipation that manipulation might happen to claim that it has, whether or not you've you know, actually manipulated an election. And I think there's something kind of analogous here, right? And there's a good reason why the Russians kind of used that attempt. They used it in 2016 too, right? They, I think, understand that you don't have to actually manipulate an election at scale in order to claim that you did and create that perception. And the perception alone is damaging and that policymakers face really real challenges around trying to both inform the public about the possibility of manipulation without kind of feeding into this broader ecosystem of mistrust. So to get back to your original question, I think, you know, deep fakes are going to, the biggest impact will be this kind of nihilism about the truth that I think is so ultimately damaging. I take your point, Jessica, that in some respects, this is about throwing sand into the gears of democracy, creating questions, creating doubts, so people can't be sure what the truth is. And I also take the point that timing could be critical in the use of some of these technologies. You mentioned the October surprise. I've been around a long time, so it seems to me almost every presidential election, someone is talking about an October surprise when the opposing camp is going to do something that could change the course of the election. The point here being that you could have something that looks pretty credible that you couldn't debunk quickly enough. And uh, I would imagine this even be a bigger issue if you have people interfering in smaller races, so to speak, smaller in air quotes, I know mayor's races, uh, maybe a contested house seat, which isn't going to bring the focus of the New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, and the rest of the media complex. By the time the truth gets its shoes on, the lie has already traveled the world several times. Is there any potential, Jessica, for technology to be a solution here? Recently, Google's DeepMind has made the claim that it's developed a technology that would create a watermark that would be unalterable, that would indicate what a deep fake is. So you could look at it and say, ah, that's not a true event because that was created because we can see the watermark. Do you see technology as potentially, whether on deep fakes or on large language models, providing a solution here? I would say yes, and there's definitely, you know, an important conversation underway about content provenance techniques. And there are, you know, companies that are working on this, you know, sort of public-private partnerships and various consortia. And I think, you know, it can be an important measure. So I, I certainly want to see, you know, efforts to innovate in that space to continue. But in, in some respects, it's a little bit of like a cultural adoption problem. Like it's not just that we need the technology, we also need sort of widespread uptake of this technology. We both need like many platforms to kind of create the architecture where it could be used. And then we also need people to be kind of literate, media, you know, media literacy efforts that would help people to understand, you know, what they're seeing. Broadly, I think this is the right approach or the kind of approach that I'm in favor of, which is helping people 
to understand the content that they encounter online so they can make their own you know, judgments. When we think about kind of content moderation approaches, this is a sort of transparency enhancing approach that I think can be useful. On the other hand, I think right now, these technologies aren't great at identifying, you know, generated content. And so my worry is that if we label some of this content and not others, we're sort of inadvertently blessing that content, which does not have labels. And so if we're missing more than we're catching, there might be a perverse effect to labeling. And then also like, what are we talking about when we talk about AI generated content? Are we, you know, I think this is a problem that's solvable, but we're not really talking about like using Photoshop to make yourself look better on a, a, you know, a photo you post online. We're talking about things that are sort of wholly generated. There's a gradient of kind of content here. Context matters a great deal. And so I think there's a whole bunch of questions that aren't really technical questions about whether you can identify manipulation or alteration, but is this the kind of alteration that we're talking about? And how do we help people to understand, you know, the difference between you know, tweaking a photo in Photoshop and something that's sort of wholly generated with manipulative intent that's likely to suppress voter intent to vote, all kinds of, you know, sort of election-related problems. And obviously, as we're talking about this, we seem to be talking a lot about deep fakes, but I want to go back to your point about being able to use AI to generate large amounts of personalized responses to people's queries, and that raises a whole different set of issues is not necessarily misleading to try to find a more persuasive way to reach the audiences you're using. I will note that the Democratic Party has already started doing tests that use AI to try to write effective fundraising messages. Obviously, if you're in American politics, you're hoping to raise money so that uh, you can win campaigns. So I'm not sure how you deal with that issue. Yeah, I mean, you could also imagine trustworthy sources of election information making robocalls that get people the right information about where they can vote. So these are just tools and they can be, you know, it depends a great deal on the hands in which they're put. And so I think you're right. We're going to see all kinds of political actors, whether they're issue advocacy groups, campaigns, government institutions, they're all going to be using these tools and some for good and some less so. I mean, I think this points toward kind of need a whole of society approach. And I think, as I mentioned, I think, you know, measures that help us to restore transparency and give context, I think are helpful. So I'd like to see things like the FEC could make sure that its disclosure requirements for political ads cover paid influencers that might be using generative AI. And we could ask social media companies to be verifying the authentic accounts of trustworthy sources of election information. This is something I've been arguing for actually for quite some time. But I think, you know, in an environment where we expect just a morass of information, some credible, some not, helping people to know where you can go for trustworthy, you know, what's a trustworthy source is really vital. CISA, I think, could be helping election officials to... CISA is... The Cyber and Information Security Authority, I believe somebody should check me on that, but it's within the <laughs> Department of Homeland Security. And they you know, are well positioned to equip election officials on a wide variety of the kind of challenges that they might face. And I think they're perfectly positioned to be resourcing you know, election officials on these issues, help them to better defend against advanced phishing techniques and all of the rest. So those are kind of the direction I think we should be thinking in terms of how do we build a framework that is resilient, knowing that these tools are coming and that they'll be adopted by a wide variety of actors towards very different ends. Jessica, I want to pick up on your point about the distinction between tools and actors. 
Obviously, tools can be used for good purposes. They can be used for bad purposes. So let's spend a little bit of time talking about who might use them. We've already begun that conversation in part. But I'm wondering if there aren't sort of norms that would inhibit major political actors, mainstream institutions from misusing AI in the way we've already suggested for the price they might pay or fear they might pay if they're found out. I'll note that uh, earlier this year, GOP presidential candidate Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida posted AI-generated images of former President Donald Trump hugging and kissing Tony Fauci, obviously for many Republicans, particularly members of the Republican base. Tony Fauci is not a popular person, but Governor DeSantis in his campaign got a lot of backlash from that. Do you think norms could hold up in part against misuse of AI technology? I do. I think norms are incredibly important here. I mean, even you know when I think about election-related disinformation challenges in a pre-generative AI era, what we want are like candidates to you know say, "I will not accept or use weaponized information," you know, in my campaign. It's not something that like the federal government or platforms can make happen by waving a wand. It requires you know it requires actors that are central to that undertaking to you know commit not to doing it, and so. I do think, you know, to your point, the public can play a role in sort of imposing a cost on those, especially political actors who are irresponsible in their use of these technologies. So there's always going to be people and always going to be actors that, you know, their kind of market differentiator is <laughs> going around or, you know, flaunting some of these norms. So I don't expect, you know, that norms alone are, are the solution. But as you said, can they be in part? I think they're a very important part of the solution because all of the, you know, ideas that I threw out just a minute ago, they all have holes in them. So we need all these layers working together. Well, Jesse, you're quite right that norms don't hold up against bad actors because bad actors are more than willing to break norms. And indeed, when we're talking about foreign election interference, breaking norms may be the whole point. So sort of walk us through how we should think about the potential for hostile countries. And we're probably here thinking Russia, we're thinking China, we're thinking Iran, North Korea. How might they use AI to disrupt or interfere or muddle in U.S. elections? Yeah, it's a great question. Just to link this back to what you just said about norms, right? I think for Russia and for China in particular, some of this is about making the world safe for their own illiberal practices, legitimating <laughs> their uses of digital technology, right? I don't think they seek a world converted to their way of doing business, but they want the world to be safe. And having chaos in the United States serves their geopolitical interests. I think it serves Russia's goals. I think of Russia and China there are important overlaps, but there are also important distinctions, right? Russia's a declining power, and I think it's seeking to compensate for its relative weakness by disrupting, as you yet to use your word, the partnerships, institutions, you know, democratic political processes of its competitor states. It wants to do that right now. And it doesn't care about attribution because if we're talking about Russia, you know, if we're talking about them, it actually makes them important. And they want to be part of the conversation. Exactly. Which I think points to some, you know, challenges that we might face with mitigation efforts because they're just not going to be sensitive to attribution. And so I think this is why their activities are destructive and they, like, the chaos is the point. Because if we're distracted and we're divided, we're not paying a more forward-leaning role in the world that might run contrary to Russia's interests. 
China, on the other hand, is a rising power. You know, it has a lot to lose from the exposure of its destabilizing activities. It does seek a stable order. It just doesn't want an order that we lead <laughs> or, you know, it wants an order that's more favorable to its way of doing business. And so it's very happy to capitalize on Russia's chaos operations, but chaos is very much not the goal for China. And where Russia does not care about like how people view Russia, the goal of its operations is never to make you think positively about the Kremlin or about Russia. China very much cares about its image, right? The goal of its information operations is about presented as like this responsible global leader and then an attractive alternative to the United States as a hegemon. And so that's why I don't think, you know, you haven't seen China. We know in 2020 they considered but decided against election interference operations. That's just not their game. Well, it's not their game in the United States. They've interfered in elections and politics around the world. Sure. Our neighbors to North Canada and Australia. I just think I take your point that the Chinese don't want to get caught, but China certainly benefits it's a more subtle system of inducements and kind of co-opting political leaders and swaying public opinion. Russia doesn't care about convincing us of any one opinion, but just making us, making democracy appear feckless and ineffective. China does care about convincing us of pro-China positions. Yeah, but I would imagine Beijing was perfectly fine if the United States can be shown to be divided and feckless because it plays into their argument that the United States is not a reliable actor, it's not a reliable partner in China with its new model can actually deliver benefits that the declining, decaying Western powers led by the United States can't do. That's their characterization, not mine. Couldn't have said it better myself. I think they come in behind, they benefit from, there's a lot of debate about whether Russia and China are coordinating. And I think it a little bit misses the point because especially in the information environment, they don't have to be intentionally, explicitly coordinating for their actions to be compounding and to have a, you know, accelerating impact. And so I think, like, think about Russian and Chinese messaging around the Ukraine crisis, for example. Why is it that we saw China parrot Russian messaging when it came to laying the blame at the feet of NATO and the United States, because again, as you say, like their interests are common. They share these targets, right? And they share these near-term goals, but they've declined to sort of endorse Putin's invasion wholesale because there's reasons why that's challenging for their vision of sovereignty. And why is it that we saw China amplifying the conspiracy theory around the Fort Detrick lab, you know, all of that, the biological weapons conspiracy theories? It's because it served China's interests in diverting blame for its early mishandling of the pandemic, right? It wants to exacerbate skepticism, you know, just these sorts of labs for those reasons. And so I think they have different goals. They work together where it's convenient for the two parties, but working together doesn't necessarily mean explicit formal coordination, just sharing these targets. And, and as you said, China's very happy to kind of come in behind, capitalize on Russian messaging about the decay of the West and and China in particular tries to cloak itself in the language of democracy. It's a whole process democracy. It kind of is, we don't see, you know, Russia really do that. So you can imagine that China could use AI tools, you know, to make it appear like a army of, you know, netizens agree with pro-China positions on, you know, Xinjiang or other issues, right? Where I don't think you'd see Russia do that. You could see Russia, as I said, like overwhelming in a destructive way, kind of spamming inboxes of elected representatives or, you know, notice and comment processes, stuff like that. That doesn't feel to me like a Chinese game trying to be happy for Russia to do it, but I don't know that they do it themselves. I mean, I could be wrong. All of this is conjecture. One thing I'd say, you know, we haven't talked about, Russia is very, very good at reading the societies that it targets. And it, it 
finds the gaps and seams or the- It's always looking for fissures. Yeah. It wants to find a fissure and stick a wedge in and make it bigger. Yeah, stick a finger in our eye. China's kind of bad at reading target societies. Better at reading the societies closer to home, but it's not great, you know, farther abroad. That's why there's been kind of a backlash to wolf warrior diplomacy. It's not clear that China's efforts are really working to its advantage. And I guess one thing I think could potentially be transformative or at least impactful about, you know, the generative AI wave that's coming or and AI generally is that, you know, if China can like use sentiment analysis tools to better read the societies that it's trying to reach and then pair that with, as I've said, A-B testing, where they can just create a ton of messaging, they might get better. And A-B testing is when you have, let's say, two different headlines and you see which one gets more resonates clicks. more. The one that gets more clicks is the one you go with. So you're always trying to find out what is the right button to push to get maximum response. Exactly. Or trying to figure out like what platform is going to get, you know, we have this message that we want to convey about a certain whatever it is, political issue, maybe one that's hot in the contentious issue in the political election, you know, in the in the 2024 election. What platform is the best platform to getting generate engagement around these issues or what audience is going to pick this up and retweet it or share it or, you know, so it's not just like the volume alone, but what that enables you to you to do. But generally speaking, I mean, China's a rich country, like it decreasing the cost is helpful, but if, you know, they're going to find the resources to do whatever, what they want to do. The Chinese Communist Party can find money in the coffers <laughs> to pay for these sort of efforts if it so desires. Yeah. We know this is going to be an issue in the 2024 election, Jessica, because we've seen increased efforts in prior elections to interfere, to meddle, not necessarily to pick a particular candidate. It may simply be to sow confusion, undermine trust, sort of the glue that holds a democracy together. What is it that the U.S. government has been doing to prepare for this moment? You've mentioned uh, one agency that has already been set up, but you sort of survey what's being done on the federal level. I'm not sure what's been done on the state and local level. Are we making adequate preparations? Yeah, I think we've come a long way since, you know, 2016 when we were really caught flat-footed. I mean, we've seen efforts by the federal government to resource election officials at the local level to kind of build a more coordinated threat picture. So for example, within ODNI, they have just stood up the Foreign Malign Influence Center. It's kind of the equivalent of the NCTC that will knit together the sort of analytic picture on foreign malign influence. You know, I think seeing across the full threat picture is really important because these operations kind of pick at the, as you've said, at the seams. And also one thing we didn't talk about, we spent most of our time talking about AI's impact on the information environment and the information environment, but there are many other ways that, you know, authoritarian actors try to interfere in democracies. And so seeing that full picture, I think is important. You know, the FBI uh, has set up a body that looks at this. So I think the government is doing a better job at both equipping itself to see the picture and then a better job at communicating with important audiences, including the public. Here, I would say the government's strategy of intelligence disclosures around the launch of the Ukraine conflict, I think, is just a really great example of how our government, I think, understands that the information domain is among the most consequential terrain that Putin's contesting. And so using these kind of disclosures to get ahead of Putin and to complicate his efforts to muddy the waters and to use kind of a false flag to justify an invasion, I think really shaped, 
you know, public perceptions of the conflict in a way that's been durable. We have a much clearer sense that Russia's the aggressor, Ukraine's the defender than we did in 2014. And it's not that our government, I think, knew more this time around than then, but that they were much more effective at communicating with the broader public. And, and I think a side effect of that was just moving fence sitters off the fence, right? Creating public support for a stronger response, not just here, but in, in Europe. So those are some of the places where I see activity like within government, between government and the public, and also, you know, just better coordination and more conversation underway with both researchers and platforms. And I would also say, and you know, the example I just gave you about the start of the Ukraine crisis and that information strategy, no way would that have worked if there hadn't been a vibrant open source intelligence community of researchers that are not affiliated with government that were able to kind of verify disclosures that government were making, right? So you had private companies that had satellite images that they were giving them to investigative journalists that were on the ground and working together, they could corroborate this body was here and it got moved there. And you know, it helped to kind of give credibility to government pronouncements that I don't think would have been trusted, especially after the intelligence failures around the Iraq war. Well, that obviously gets in a whole different set of concerns that I think many Americans might have, that their own government could use AI and information technology to mislead them or persuade them. And that's sort of, I think, a complicated subject. I mean, you already see right now that a fair number of Americans don't trust the messages they're getting from Washington, whether it's held or governed by Republicans or by Democrats. Yeah, I mean, there are so many ways to take that question. I, you know, I think this is the point that I was making about sort of nihilism about the existence of objective truth and the paralysis that that causes within a democratic society. And so it's not a problem that, you know, we can wave a wand and fix. I don't think it's a problem that can be fixed, but a condition to be managed. But, you know, not to be Pollyanna-ish about it, but I think it's incumbent upon all of us. Like our democracy is only as strong as we make it. And it's incumbent on all of us to kind of lower the temperature of the debate and to instill a healthy respect in one another, you know, and to, where possible, behave responsibly online, which is not to say that I think the whole responsibility for solving this problem falls to the level of the individual user. I mean, especially when we're talking about Russia and China and Iran and other actors, we're talking about, you know, going up against the well-resourced intelligence services of adversary states. So I don't think that it's media literacy alone is a reasonable place to land, but it is a component because I think our polarization, it's like the number one obstacle to overcoming foreign interference because it provides the fodder on which so many of these operations rely and it makes it harder for us to do the things we need to do to get our house in order. Well, foreign intelligence services are clearly taking advantage of pre-existing momentum in the U.S. political system. And that's getting back to your point about the Russians reading their societies, trying to find cracks and fissures and then to exploit them. I'm just curious, Jessica, I take your point that at the end of the day, the weight can't be entirely on individual citizens in democracies to be able to stop misuse of AI and misinformation. But do you have any advice for people listening to our conversation about what they can do to sort of minimize the chances that they can be misled by this technology because it is quite impressive. I mean, just learning that uh, AI can get a small clip of your voice and then build up realistic dialogues uh, that could fool your closest friends is pretty chilling. Yeah. I mean, I think too much skepticism is a bad thing, but healthy skepticism is 
healthy. And so I think, especially when it comes to, for example, accessing election information, you know, before you're listening to or taking your cues from posts from friends online, like seek out trusted sources of information, authoritative news outlets, or your local election boards. Those are the kinds of places where you you can rely on the information that's provided there. And then, as I've said, like if content makes you angry <laughs> or you know if you re- if you sort of notice like an emotional response just take a beat and you know think about what is the intent behind that content and maybe don't play a role in furthering it because i think we would all benefit from as i said just a healthy respect for one another raising quality of our political debates because our democracy is as strong as we make it on that wise note about taking deep breaths in a moment to reflect i'm going to close up the president's inbox for this week My guest has been Jessica Brandt, Policy Director for the Artificial Intelligence and Emerging Technology Initiative at the Brookings Institution, where she is a fellow in the Foreign Policy Program's Strobe Talbot Center for Security, Strategy, and Technology. Jessica, thank you very much for joining me for a very informative conversation. Thanks again. I enjoyed it. Please subscribe to The President's Inbox on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen and leave us a review. We love the feedback. The publications mentioned in this episode and a transcript of our conversation are available on the podcast page for the President's Inbox on CFR.org. As always, opinions expressed in the President's Inbox are solely those of the host or our guests, not of CFR, which takes no institutional positions on matters of policy. Today's episode was produced by Esther Fang with Director of Podcasting, Gabrielle Sierra. Special thanks go out to Michelle Carilla for her research assistance. This is Jim Lindsay. Thanks for listening.